0: Welcome to Mercy House University's podcast. This is episode three of our new-ish series um, that we're calling... Or what is it? Does Prayer work? (laughs) And today we're hearing from Justin. What are you going to talk about today, Justin? I am going to be talking about prayer for the past. (laughs) (laughs) Woo. Okay, so what is
1: prayer for the past? Is it like back to the future, like don't talk to your mother, or...
0: <laughs> <laughs> what, what, are the, what are the rules for for, 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 <laughs> prayer the past? for the So I think the, the best way to uh, explain what prayer for the past is is just to give ordinary examples. Uh, so here's an example uh, that I'm stealing from Kevin Tempe, which is ultimately based on a similar example from Thomas Flint. But anyway, uh, so suppose you have you're uh, listening to the news and a report comes on that a tornado has just gone through a certain town where a friend of yours lives, and there were some casualties. But you don't know who the casualties are. Well, in that situation, you might reasonably pray to God that your friend is one of the survivors and not one of the casualties. And it seems like in that situation, what you're doing is praying that things that have already happened went a certain way. You're praying that In the past, when this tornado went through this town, it didn't kill your friend. Or here's another example. Uh, Suppose you've just taken a test and you're walking out of the classroom and you're not sure how you did and so you pray to God, you know, I pray I did well on that test. Again, it seems like what you're doing there is you're praying um, that things in the past went a certain way, things having to do with how you answered the questions and so on. Uh, So that's what prayer for the past is. Uh, It's, in a sense, exactly what it says it is. It's praying that certain things happen, but where those things have already happened.
1: The scenarios you're setting up are specifically scenarios where we don't know the outcome of the events. Why does
0: that matter? True, I have specifically used examples where we don't know how the past turned out. And um, one reason for that is that that's because that's the way we, in fact, pray for the past, right? The cases I gave are very ordinary real-life cases. People actually pray that way. But you don't usually see pre- people actually praying, you know, that America won the Revolutionary War, for example, where we know that that's what happened. And, and we'll come back to that later about, well, why is that the case? And does it make sense that we do things that way or should we not do things that way? I also want to say something about why this matters, I think the, the examples I gave are again a good way of trying to answer the question like why should we care whether prayer for the past can be effective? Um, and because that is the main focus of today's podcast is it's whether prayer for the past can be effective, whether it can work. And it seems like it's obvious why we should care about this because sometimes we do pray for the past and when we do it's because we care about the way that the past went. Uh, that seems to be clearly true in those examples that, you know, I just gave. So it seems like this is this is a, a question we should care about. Can prayer for the past be effective? So um, why would we have to worry that prayer for the past might not be effective? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so there is actually some academic literature on this question, and the main worry that people talk about in that literature it can be summed up basically like this. Prayer for the past, you might think, uh, it can't be effective because it's too late. So the thought being like, look, when you, by the time you offer a prayer for the past, the thing that you prayed for has already either happened or not happened. That's already settled, over and done with, in the past. And so you might think, look, it's too late for my prayer to make any difference to whether or not it happens or not. All right, that's the basic worry. Now it's important to understand what what this worry isn't saying. So, one reason you might worry that prayer for the past can't be <coughs> effective is you might think that it would require God to change the past. And there are some reasons, I think, to doubt that um, God changes the past. I don't want to go into those right now. Instead, what I'm gonna say is that actually we can bypass all of those problems. Because I think that what prayer for the past requires is not that God change the past, right? So it's not that the past goes one way and then you pray that maybe it goes a different way and then God maybe rolls back time and somehow redoes things. Um, I don't think any of that is necessary in order for prayer for the past to be effective, though perhaps it is one way that it could be. Uh, That's a controversial question in its own right. All that we really need in order for prayer for the past to be effective, is for it to be the case that some events happen because they are going to be prayed for later. That's all we need. But the worry, again, is that even just demanding that uh, sort of explanatory condition and not demanding uh, changing the past might be uh, problematic. Because look, once an event takes place, Right? Any prayer that comes after it, you might think, look, it's too late for that prayer to make any difference to that event. Right, The prayer, you might think, can't have any effect until it actually happens. But by the time it happens, the event is already settled. It's already either happened or not happened. So that, I think, is the the right way of thinking about the main worry for whether prayer for the past can be effective.
1: Yeah, so the problem is is similar to cases of like backwards causation, right? Mm-hmm. Where... Uh... An event occurs, and part of the explanation for why the event occurs happens later in time
0: than the event. Yeah. But Justin, if God knows the future, could then prayer for the past be effective? Yeah, so this is one way that people have tried to make sense of the idea that maybe prayer for the past could work. Um, The thought is, hey, look, God knows the future. But if God knows the future, then maybe prayer for the past could work like this. Um, It returned to the case of the tornado. Uh, Let's say that, you know, this tornado is about to go through this town where your friend lives. And God is looking into the future and seeing that in the future you are going to pray that your friend survives. And so God then sees that you're going to make that prayer in the future. uh, And so decides that when God lets the tornado pass through that town, God's going to protect your friend and make sure your friend is not among any of the casualties And it seems like in that case We have um, the the condition we were after We have a certain event happening Because it's going to be prayed for later uh, My friend surviving the tornado happens Because I later pray for it And the trick to making the, the explanation work backwards like that From a later event to an earlier event Is God's knowledge of the future God knows what I am going to pray for in the future long before I ever pray for. This is one way that some people have tried to uh, explain maybe how prayer for the past could be effective. I want to raise one worry about this model of prayer for the past, a worry that some people aren't bothered by, other people are, maybe you will be, maybe you won't be, but it's definitely worth thinking about. So you might think that in order for prayer for the past to be effective in this way, where God's knowledge of the future, God's foreknowledge is what it's called, is doing the main work, uh, you might think that this threatens to introduce what are called explanatory loops. Explanatory loops show up a lot in time travel movies. And so here's what an explanatory loop is. It's when you have an event that ends up explaining itself, perhaps through a long chain of intermediate events, but it kind of like backtracks and comes back and explains itself. Think about it this way, uh, and actually it might help to write this down or to draw this on a piece of paper if you have one handy. Um, Let's say we have an event, call it A. uh, And then another event that A explains maybe by causing it, uh, call that event B. And on a piece of paper you could represent this by drawing A and then drawing an arrow connecting A to B. That will mean A explains B. And then suppose B explains C. So you draw an arrow from B to C. And then suppose that C explains D. Draw an arrow from C to D. But now let's suppose that D explains (coughs) A. So now draw an arrow from D back to A where you started. And what you have now is an explanatory loop, like you've got this circle of events where each event in the circle explains the next event in the circle, right? D happens because C happened, C happens because B happened, B happened because A happened, but then A happened because D happened. And what this does when you have an explanatory loop is it has the result that everything in the loop ultimately explains itself. Because if you take any one letter in the loop, like A, and you trace backwards, following the arrows backwards, to say, okay, what explained that, what explained that, you always will end up eventually getting back to where you started. Some people think explanatory loops are impossible, um, that they're problematic in some way. Uh, it seems like nothing can explain itself, right? A can't be the reason why A occurred. You have to have something else to explain why A occurred. Now, here's the reason why this model of prayer for the past uh, involving God's knowledge of the future might result in explanatory loops. Let's take the example again of the tornado. So you might remember, as I originally presented the example, I hear on the news that this tornado has gone through this town where my friend lives. And I hear on the news that there have been some casualties and that's what causes me to pray that my friend was not a casualty of this tornado. But now let's add something to the story, just for fun. Suppose that the reason that the news report came out as early as it did and included a report of casualties is because my friend actually was the one who witnessed The casualties and reported that to the local news station. And so, if my friend had died in the tornado, that wouldn't have happened and the news report wouldn't have gone out when it did or had the content that it did. Now it seems like we have an explanatory loop if we say that my prayer explains why my friend was a survivor of the tornado because we have something like this going on. We have my prayer explains why God saves my friend from the tornado. God's saving my friend from the tornado explains why the news report goes out. The news report explains why I pray that God saves my friend from the tornado, and around and around we go. Okay, so if you're worried about explanatory loops, if you think that those are problematic or impossible, then that's a reason, I think, to worry about this model of the future of God answering prayers uh, based on God's just knowledge that they're going to be given in the future, because it threatens, at least, to introduce explanatory loops like the one that I just described.
1: Uh, can you give any like specific examples or reasons why people might uh, think explanatory loops are impossible?
0: Yeah, so I think some people take the explanation relation to be irreflexive, which just means that Something can't explain it, itself. Yeah, and that's just supposed to be like self-evident. Yeah, it's supposed to be like an intuition that mm-hmm. a lot of people have. And so you might think that uh, since explanatory loops result in everything in the loop ultimately explaining itself, then you know that's yeah. Not I so mean,
1: great. you might but. think that uh, that that's true, but in fact. It's not the case that any single event in the loop explains itself. Any event in the loop explains some other event, but not itself. It, it, oh, there, are there's you? this thing, there's this feature of the loop that's weird, and you maybe you would want to rule out a case where an event stands directly in an explanatory relation to itself, but where it's mediated by other
0: events that it explains. hmm Right, so are you thinking if you deny that explanation is transitive, then we, can, we don't have to think that an explanatory loop involves any cases of self-explanation? Yeah, maybe something like that. Yeah. Another um, worry some people have about explanatory loops is that in the case of an explanatory loop, you might think, look, there's no explanation why the whole loop occurs, because all the explanation is, like, self-contained. Yeah. And you might think, well, there's got to be some reason why this whole thing happened. And there's also ways that you could try to respond to that worry. I think David Hunt, for example, has mm-hmm. argued that, no, well, sure, there could be an explanation of why there's this loop of explanations. Why not? Nobody said there couldn't be. Yeah.
1: All right. So maybe some some people might not like the idea of explanatory loops. So is there another way to explain how Prayer for the Past might work that avoids that?
0: Yeah. So um, there are other accounts... In the literature, and one that has been, it seems like, been more popular is this one. So you might think that instead of God's knowledge of what we will pray for in the future playing the starring role in the story, instead, God's knowledge of what we would pray for in various possible circumstances is what plays the starring role in the story about how prayer for the past is affected. So this is the difference between what's called God's foreknowledge, God's knowledge of the future, and what is sometimes called God's counterfactual knowledge, knowledge of what would be the case if certain circumstances obtained. So here's how a model featuring God's counterfactual knowledge would work, a model of prayer for the past. The idea would be this. Uh, We'll keep coming back to our tornado case. Instead of God Looking into the future and seeing that I'm going to pray that my friend survives the tornado and and taking that as the reason to uh, save my friend from the tornado. What God does is God considers this fact that God knows, that if God were to let this tornado pass through the town where my friend lives, I would pray that my friend survives. And so God, knowing this fact, decides, okay, well then, if I let the tornado pass through the town, I am going to want uh, to answer that prayer, and so I will make sure that it doesn't kill the friend. And then maybe God decides, okay, yeah, and I am going to let the tornado pass through the town. And consequent on all those decisions, what happens? Well, the tornado goes through the town, my friend is saved, later I pray, but it also seems like, at least, well, at any rate, the counterfactual fact that I would pray in those circumstances was the reason why God saved my friend. So that's the basic idea behind the counterfactual model. And there are different versions of this model, um, depending on how you think the conditional facts about what I would pray for work. So one version of this model um, might say that actually it's just a a matter of, like, the conditions in the world, the laws of nature and the conditions I'm in, that those actually determine that I would pray. Um, And that would be true, for example, on theological determinism, where God ultimately uh, causally determines everything that happens. There's also a view called Molinism, on which the facts about what we would do in various circumstances are not determined by the features in those circumstances. They can be influenced, but they're not, like, causally determined. And so there's an extent to which it's just a sort of a brute fact, the way it's sometimes put, that I would pray in those circumstances. But on the Molinist view, God knows even those brute facts and takes those into account when God is deliberating. Okay, so I want to raise a worry for this model as well, and then try to answer it. But just a heads up, this next part of the discussion is going to be maybe a little bit tougher to follow if you're not you know, someone who reads a lot of philosophy. <laughs> I'm going to try to make it as accessible as possible, but it could get a little wacky. So here's a worry that some people have or have expressed about this model of prayer for the past. You might think that, look, if what God is doing is ulti- if if God, say, you know, protecting my friend from the tornado is ultimately because of what I would pray for in various circumstances and not because of God's knowing that I will pray for it in those future circumstances, you might think, well, it's not really the case that my actual prayer is explaining why my friend was saved, right? It's just this hypothetical fact about what I would pray for if I were in certain circumstances that's doing all the explanatory work. And you might think that's not genuinely a case of prayer for the past being affected.
1: Something about me is figuring in the story, but it's not what I did. Right, yeah, so something like that. <clears throat> you, you can actually think uh, as a, uh, maybe a helpful example about the movie Minority Report. hmm So in that movie, there are some people with precognition who are able to tell crimes that people would commit if there's no if intervention. There's no intervention. Yeah. And then people are arrested on that basis. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the moral implications are like: wait, you're arresting for people, people not for things that they are going to do because you're not letting them do them, or for things that they have done. You're arresting them for things that they would do, and that doesn't seem right because mm-hmm. uh, people aren't responsible for things that they haven't done, and they're not responsible for just things that they would do. And you can say the same thing about the per case: people aren't responsible just for the things that they would do, but, but the hope is that we're actually responsible in some sense for our prayers.
0: Right, okay. So here is a way that I think one could try to reply to this worry. So I think that in cases where the person is actually eventually put in the circumstances in question, right? Like, so suppose it's true that if I were to hear this news report about the tornado, I would pray. Uh, I would offer that particular prayer. Now, I think, it turns out, I think, it's, I think it's the case that if I do actually end up in those circumstances where I hear the news report, and I do actually offer the prayer, then I think that there are two explanations of the counterfactual conditional, two explanations of the fact that if I were in those circumstances, I would pray. One explanation is is in terms of another conditional, and this is something that um, Alex Proust and Josh Rasmussen have argued in a paper of theirs. It seems like uh, one reason why it would be true that if I were in those circumstances, I would pray, is because if I were in those circumstances, I would have really compelling reasons to pray. That's one explanation of why that counterfactual is true. But it seems like Provided that I do actually eventually end up in those circumstances and I really do offer the prayer, there's also another explanation for why the counterfactual is true. And that's because that I actually give that prayer in those circumstances. Think about it this way. It certainly seems like it's up to me whether I pray in those circumstances. And so if you actually put me in those circumstances, and then I actually choose to pray, it seems like I am in some sense settling that I would pray in those circumstances. At any rate, this is a view that some people endorse. Now suppose for a minute that that's right. Well, then one of the explanations of why the conditional that God acts on is true is in fact my prayer. And so my prayer ends up involved in the explanatory story after all. Now you might think, oh, wait a minute, but this brings us back to the problem of explanatory loops. And here's why. As soon as I bring my actual future prayer back into the explanation, now we're back to this story. My prayer explains why it's true that I would pray in those circumstances. It's being true that I would pray in those circumstances explains why God knows that I would pray in those circumstances. That explains why God answers the prayer and then you can set up the rest of the story the way we did before in order to close the circle and make an explanatory loop. But here I think um, there is a possible way out that I'm not totally sure what to think of this, but for some reason it strikes me as promising. Uh, So as soon as you have two explanations of one of the links in an explanatory loop, it seems to me that this explanatory loop is intuitively innocuous. So go back to that drawing of you know, A with an arrow pointing to B, B with an arrow pointing to C, and so on, and it circles back around to A. What we're doing when we say that one of the links in the circle has two explanations, uh, you can represent it like this take another letter, let's call it X, and draw it outside of the circle and then draw an arrow from X to one of the links in the circle. It doesn't matter which one, but let's just pick A. So now your picture looks like this. You've got A, B, C, D, A pointing to each other around in a circle, but A actually has two arrows pointing to it, one from D, which is in the circle, and one from X, which is outside the circle. Now, it turns out that even though A seems to explain itself, um, there's al- it's also the case that A has another explanation that's outside the circle, namely X. And the same thing is actually gonna hold for every uh, link in the circle. Any letter you pick will have two explanations. One that you get by just following the circle around and eventually arriving back at the letter you started with. So one explanation will be it explains itself but another will be if you follow the circle back until you get to the branch where one way you go, you can keep going around the circle, and the other way you go off towards x. And so every link in the circle will be explained both by itself, but also by x, which is not a part of the circle. And so for me, this makes it intuitively less troublesome that there's an explanatory loop here, and I'm gonna try to express why that's true. I think it's because for one thing, each, item in the chain would have happened anyway even if it hadn't explained itself because the x explanation was involved and for me that seems less problematic because we've got like an independent account of why this event happened we don't just have to appeal to this purely bootstrapping story about somehow it made itself happen and then this might just be another way of stating the same thought but it seems to me that what we've got here is an explanation of why the whole circle occurs because you can think of the explanation as going like this. You start with X and then you follow that arrow into the circle and then maybe you just keep going around and around the circle. But you had a starting point somewhere and the starting point wasn't the circle itself. It was outside of it. So uh, can take us back to the tornado example. What's the X in that case? Oh, right, good, yeah. So. Um, X is one of the two explanations pointing to A in our drawing. So A is the thing that has two explanations. In the tornado case then, A is the counterfactual that if I were to hear this news report, I would pray that my friend is saved. And then the two explanations are these. Um, D, the explanation inside the circle is going to be, oh, the fact that I uh, actually do make that prayer in those circumstances, right? And that, that explanation is one that's inside the circle. Mm. X is going to be this explanation, that if I were in those circumstances, I would have really compelling reasons to offer that prayer. Just, so
1: A in our circle is representing the, the counterfactual claim, if I were in those circumstances, in those circumstances I would pray. Yeah. D is explaining A, and D is
0: the... I am in those, I circumstances, in those circumstances, and I do pray. I do pray. Yeah. And then X, sorry. uh, And then X is is this counterfactual. If I were in those circumstances, I would have really compelling reasons to prove. And that's just a fact about, like, what explains that? Well, just the laws of nature, the structure of my psychology, right? It doesn't have to be a deterministic explanation. It might be, it might not be. But the point is that explanation seems to be, you know, totally independent of the stuff going on in the circle, right? That's just a broader feature of the world.
1: Does it matter whether God is inside or outside of time? So, like, sometimes we, we will say that God is like beyond or outside of time, but some, some of the ways we've been talking about this make it sound like God is making decisions at a particular time. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, should, what should we think about that, or does it matter?
0: So I think the first thing to point out here is that this is something on which Christians have disagreed. Uh, in the tradition. So there isn't just like one Christian view about how God is related to time. Definitely the dominant view has been in the history of the tradition has been that God is outside of time, but it's not the only view. And among specialists on God and time today, it's actually the less popular view currently anyway. So There is a disagreement here. Is God inside of time? Is God outside of time? Is there some way of doing it in between? There are some people who think so. Like maybe you can kind of be God is inside of time in one respect and outside in another. Let's make sure uh, that we have some grasp, though, on what the main options are. So we'll focus on just the two main options. These aren't the only views that exist, but they're the two main ones. The, The main, like, traditional view is that God is outside of time. And what that means is that the claim that God exists, although it's true, it's only true if you understand it tenselessly. So you can't understand it as saying God exists now, because that's false on the view that God is outside of time. It's also false that God used to exist or existed at times in the past And it's also false that God exists or will exist in the future. Because to be now or to be in the past or to be in the future entails being in time. And this view says God is not in time. So God exists, but not at times, all right? Um, Now there's a sense in which you can say things like, well, God will still exist in the future and God will always exist in the past because it's always been true tenselessly that God exists, and it always will be true, tenselessly that God exists. It's true now, right? But technically, God is not in time on this view. The main alternative to this view is the view that God is inside of time, and that um, on this view, uh, the the main version of this view says that God is temporally everlasting, or sometimes it's called sempiternal. The idea is that you can go back forever and ever into the past without end, and there will always be an earlier moment of time, and at every moment of time in the past, God existed at that time. And similarly, you can go forever and ever and ever into the future, and at every moment of time in the future, there's always going to be another one. There's never going to be an end. And at every one of those times, God exists then. So God has always existed forever and ever, and will always exist forever and ever, and exists now. All right, that's the view that—the main version of the view that God is inside of time. Okay. Now, what bearing does this have on prayer for the past? So some people—I've talked to people who think that this has a huge effect, who think that this is basically what it comes down to uh, in, when it comes to whether prayer for the past can be effective. And if I'm remembering correctly, I think that um, C.S. Lewis uh, actually—I think it's in the Screw Tape Letters— presents a model of prayer for the past, which seems to rely primarily on the thought that God is outside of time. And the thought, I think, is something like this, if I'm remembering right, I think this is Lewis's idea, is that, look, as long as God is outside of time, then it doesn't matter when the prayer happens or the thing prayed for, right? All of that is just laid out in front of God in this, like, timeless, uh, eternal state. And so it doesn't matter. God can have you know, do things over here in response to other things that are happening later and so forth. It doesn't make any difference. It's all right there at, at once, so to speak, for God. And that's fair enough, but I guess it seems to me that actually God's relationship to time isn't the crucial issue here. It's rather what God knows that's the crucial issue. Because even if God is inside of time, if God knows what's gonna happen in the future, it doesn't matter that God is knowing that from the vantage point of now rather than from the vantage point of this timeless state, right? It, it, either way, you might think God can react to those facts about the future. Or similarly, with the counterfactuals, um, it makes, I think, no difference if you take the counterfactual model, how God is related to time whether or not God knows what people would pray for in various circumstances and whether that information is useful to God in one way or another. So I think that if the question of God's relationship to time impacts this issue of prayer for the past, it can only do that indirectly if you think it affects what God knows. And some people do think it affects what God knows. Some people think that the only way for God to know the future is to be outside of time and to be able to have like all of the all of time sort of simultaneous, well, you know, speaking loosely here, simultaneously laid out in front of God at once. And if you think that, and you also think that the right way to think about prayer for the past being effective is the, the foreknowledge model rather than the counterfactual model, then you might think that in order for prayer to, for the past to be effective, God has to be outside of time. But I'm inclined to reject every step of that <laughs> argument myself. I, I don't think that um, the foreknowledge model is necessary in order to understand the efficaciousness of prayer for the past. And I don't think that God's being outside of time is necessary for God to know the future. But, uh, you know, this is something people disagree about. All this is really interesting to think about, but practically speaking, do you feel like we should be praying for the past? And if so, why don't you think we do it more often? Uh, Yeah, so it certainly seems like it's something that we naturally do, almost without thinking about it, right? We often offer prayers like the examples I gave at the beginning, like the, I pray that I did well on that test, I pray that my loved one survived this recent disaster, etc. But then the question is like, well, look, uh, and this is something Austin raised earlier. It seems like we only pray for the past when we don't know how it turned out and we care how it turned out. But we don't pray for the past when we do know how it turned out. And you might wonder why, I mean, why not pray for past things you know if it's if it's reasonable to pray for the past when we don't know how it turned out why isn't it equally reasonable to pray for the past when we do know how it turned out and you might think that that's worrisome because it might make it seem like our practice of prayer for the past is kind of irrational we only do it in these weird select cases so I think that um, there's disagreement about this but I I think I'm with uh, Eleanor Stump on this point I think it's entirely reasonable to pray for the past only when, or for the most part, only when, we don't know how it turned out, and we care how it turned out. And I think that that's the, the reason for that is this, Stump says this as well. You might think, look, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, usually, to pray for something that you know you already have. And similarly, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, usually. To pray for something that you already know you're not going to get. And in the case where, where we know how the past turned out, right, it seems like any prayer for how it turned out would either be a prayer for something that we now know we're not going to get, because it didn't go that way, or it would be a prayer for something that we know we've already got, because it did go that way, we know it went that way. But when we don't know how it turned out, which are the cases where we are sort of naturally inclined to pray for the past, then it seems like, oh, of course it makes sense. You care that things went that way. Prayer for the past might be effective for all we've seen. We've seen some ways it might work. Uh, And so it's worth a prayer, perhaps, right? Uh, You know, you don't know that you haven't gotten it or that you have, and you might be able to do something about it at this point. All right, so that's prayer for the past.
1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Mercy House University Podcast's series, Does Prayer Work? Next episode, we'll be looking at the life of a particular person from scripture to see what we can learn about prayer from the lives of great people from scripture. So we hope you'll join us next time.